today is Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. The apostles are brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, first question is this. Would you give up your faith in Jesus for $70,000? This was the choice facing Sister Hua from China. She is a believer from a Buddhist ethnic group, and the local village chief said that he would block her from receiving uh, the government subsidies. Hands up if anyone likes the government subsidies. If anyone likes the end of tax season, you know, uh, well, it depends on who you are. But, uh, but, and, and that, so the village chief said that, uh, he would block the subsidies that she was entitled to, equivalent to about 70,000 US over the next few years, if she didn't give up her faith in Jesus Christ. She has two children, aged four and six, and the money that she would have made, uh, through this would have made a huge difference to her family and her children's futures. And this was money that she was entitled to receive. But Sister Hua has seen the power of God when she was suffering an illness. Yeah, there were Christians who had prayed for her and she was completely healed. So she refused, you know, to give up her faith. So the village chief stopped her from receiving that money. Now, due to the fact that believers from uh, mainly the Buddhist ethnic groups are persecuted by not only by the state, but also by their by their own own communities. They are some of the most persecuted followers of Christ in China. And with such fierce opposition, it's no surprise that they are small in numbers. Open Doors, a website, estimates that there are just 1,000 Christians uh, that are from these ethnic groups in the country of China. And yet many of these followers of Christ have chosen Jesus over money, houses, and even their own freedom. Life isn't easy for Sister Hua and her family. They are able to survive through working their farm, but the subsidy would make their life life so much easier. In spite of this, she says, I will follow Jesus Christ for the rest of my life because he is the one and only true God. This uh, report I just read is from the Open Doors Canada website posted on January the 7th of this year. This morning we're starting a new series as as we follow uh, year C of the Revised Common Lectionary. And over a span of three years, the lectionary helps us engage with about 80% of the verses in the Bible. So it's a great way for us to see the inner cohesiveness of Scripture and to trace themes that run through the Bible. So you can always know what our texts are going to be for the next Sunday by going to this website, lectionary.library.vanderbilt.edu, and you can actually find out what we'll be preaching on roughly 
uh, you know, maybe two months from now, four months from now, eight months from now, it's all there. Uh, it's a great resource. And so this series now starts with Easter and, uh, and it spans the next six Sundays, taking us up to Pentecost. And so the lectionary is a great way for us to feel the ebb and flow of the church year. And the theme for this teaching series is surprise, the unexpected acts of God. And this will lead us through some moments in the book of Acts, which leads us straight to our text this morning. Acts 5 verse 29 says, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. And the surprising change this morning that we're looking at is when Peter and the other apostles change from being fearful sort of followers of Jesus to being willing to challenge the religious establishment and resist corrupt power up to the point of prison and also torture. And of course, this is the moment or, or the moment that changed them from, you know, cringer into battle cat was not the power of Grayskull. Any 80s references? Yeah, anyone? Yeah. Okay, good. It did get resurrected a, a, a few years ago. But it wasn't the power of Grayskull that changed them from being cringer. It was the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So the first question, as I looked at this, was, was this. Why not obey human beings. Why not obey human beings? After all, verse 28 of, of, of uh, chapter 5 says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So Peter and the apostles have a clear mandate from the authorities, do not teach in Jesus' name. And so I guess the question is this, is obey because we told you to a good enough reason to obey whoever is in authority it's a good question and i think that one of the first things that we must ask as jesus followers whether deciding to obey or not is this who is it that is demanding my obedience it's so important to know who it is that is insisting that we obey, right? That's one of the fundamentals. And in verse 27, we find out who they are. Who is it that is requesting or rather demanding their obedience? It says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. That's the who. To be questioned by the high priest. That's also the who. So those assuming this position of authority is the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish and uh, which is the religious and cultural Jewish ruling council um, led by the high priest who is in charge. And then in Acts chapter four verse five, going back a little bit further, we find out more about who is in the Sanhedrin. Acts four verse five. But the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Verse six. Annas. The high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. So that's who. 
they had brought Peter and John, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So we have Annas, we have Caiaphas, who happened to be the ones who condemned Jesus just recently, and also John, Alexander, and others, as well as the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law. So names are useful, but another way to know who is demanding your obedience is to look at their character by means of their track record. So what was the track record of the Sanhedrin? Well, they seized the apostles, and they jailed them. Acts 4 verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. They also forcibly questioned the apostles. Acts 4 verse 7, they are Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name did you do this? They also tried to muzzle and silence them. Today we would call it deplatforming or cancelling them. They then called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They threatened them without good reason. Acts 4, 21, after further threats, they, they let them go. They, they could not decide how to punish them. Why? Because there was nothing to punish them for because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. They also arrested them because of jealousy. That was the motive, Acts 5.17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public, in the public jail. You can see there, you know, the cause and effect. Uh, and then again, they forcibly questioned the apostles. One more time, Acts 5.27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. So we know who the Sanhedrin are, and we know their track record. They are a group of people who are throwing their weight around to stop or silence uh, followers of Jesus by using pretty much any means necessary within their power. So any time that we feel that our rights as Jesus followers are being impinged upon by the government, whether municipal or provincial or federal, then we should resist, right? Or maybe we could ask it in a different way. Should we ever obey anyone in authority who challenges our worldview or holds to a different worldview or who we don't agree with even on fundamental issues? Is there any circumstance in which we should say, yes, I will obey you even though? And the answer is yes. The broad-based evidence of Scripture is that our default mode should probably be obedience. To live as kingdom citizens of Jesus means that we should be the best and most obedient and model citizens in the country. Here's a few scriptures. Romans 13 Verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, uh, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And in case we're tempted to think that, well, Paul's only saying this because he happened to like who was in power at that time, Paul actually wrote this verse under the reign of Nero, who set fire to three quarters of Rome as a pretext to blaming the Christians uh, whose um, 
either corpses or live, live, live bodies he then used as these like mega tiki torches uh, for his garden parties as well as feeding Christians to lions. So, so this is the context of Romans chapter 13 verse 1. Paul also reminds Titus in, um, in chapter 3 verse 1, uh, reminds the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. And then Jesus, you know, the King of kings and Lord of lords, um, says himself, uh, when he's talking to Pilate, or this is what Pilate says to him, John 19.10, do you refuse to, to speak to me, Pilate said, don't you realize I have power, I free you or to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So back to Acts chapter 5, where Peter says, we must obey God rather than human beings. What we learn is that a human being simply stating obey because I told you so isn't enough reason to simply say, okay, I will do because you're the boss. Instead, we need to know who is commanding our obedience and what is their track record. But then we also have the testimony of Scripture that says that obedience to authority should be our default mode. And part of our witness and worship is to be good citizens or permanent residents. I still haven't made that step yet. I will soon join your ranks. It's not happened yet. Um, of this place that we call home. So you can see that we're starting to approach this um, ethical gray zone of figuring out what are the right what is what are the circumstances under which the right thing to do is not to obey human authorities and instead to obey God. But before we get there, just like we looked at the track record of the Sanhedrin, which was pretty poor, we also have to look at the track record of the God who demands our allegiance. And we see God's character and track record clearly outlined for us in verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Again, there's a little bit of the of the Sanhedrin's track record. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. This is God's track record. This is us knowing who is it uh, in terms of God that is demanding our obedience. So why should we obey God according to this verse? Well, according to these verses, you obey someone who has power over death. And you tend to obey someone who died for you. And you obey an exalted prince and savior. And you obey someone who forgives you. In other words, why obey God? Because he loves you. And he showed that love through dying, through rising again, through being exalted and through forgiving us. It's easy to obey someone when you know they love you and when they have your best interests at heart. So the first reason to obey God from verse 30 is simply because he loves you. But there's another reason to obey God. And this is because of the witnesses. 
Acts 5.32. And Acts 5.32 tells us there are two witnesses, uh, an external witness and an internal witness. So the first witness, the external witness, uh, says this. We are witnesses of these things. So Peter is saying to the Sanhedrin, we've seen your track record of jealousy and beatings and imprisonment and muzzling and silencing, and we've witnessed God's track record through signs and wonders, through miracles and salvations. Um, that's what he's saying so far. But what what is this track record um, or what is this external evidence that Peter has been witness to? Well, first, Acts 3, verse 1, Peter heals a lame panhandler. Acts 3, 11, an amazed crowd gathers at Sol- Solomon's colonnade, and Peter preaches the gospel message. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the, the temple authorities aren't happy. There's jail, but God is moving. Um, we're told in, uh, um, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, here's, uh, here's, here's the external things which, which, uh, which Peter's seen. First, there was 120 people saved. Then Acts 2.41, that number is now 3,000 people. Acts 4, verse 4, that number is of transformed lives is 5,000 men, which is probably 10,000 people. Uh, Acts chapter 4, 13 to 14, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with with Jesus. So one of the witnesses is, uh, one of the external witnesses is Peter seeing God use regular people like him to do incredible things. What else? Acts chapter 4 verse 14. The authorities seal this, see this lame, uh, healed lame panhandler and they cannot refute what they see, but still in Acts 4 verse 18 they say stop preaching. Peter says, why don't you say to us what's right to listen to God or to listen to you? They, they, they're threatened, like I already mentioned, and they're let go. Acts 4.29, uh, the believers pray for boldness. Interesting, right? That they don't pray for safety, but they pray for boldness. They're, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit again. Acts 4.32, there's unity, there's generosity, there's power in the church, and the people give, which, of course, is a sure sign of the moving of God, right? What else? Acts 4.32, all of the believers were in one heart and mind. Again, a miracle of um, resurrection proportions here. Everyone being in one heart and mind. Uh, Acts 5 verse 1, Ananias and Sapphira, they are killed by God because of their lies or their fake faith. And there is great fear in the church. Acts 5 verse 12, this uh, young church continues to meet in Solomon's colony. They're respected and they're feel, feared. There's healings and there's numeric growth. Uh, and then there's this success that leads to jealousy, that leads to persecution, that leads to imprisonment, that leads to a release by an angel. Um, Acts 5 verse 20 uh, says this, um, is, is where Peter and his friends are told by the angel who's released them from prison, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. And then in Acts chapter 5 verse 32, he says, uh, we are witnesses of these things. Okay, this is all, this is all that Peter has seen. He's seen God's love and he's seen this external witness. But there's also an internal witness. Acts 5.32. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
So when someone chooses to bow the knee and worship Jesus as Lord and Savior, something incredible happens, i.e. the Holy Spirit moves in, takes residence, and he witnesses to your inner person that everything is fundamentally changed. Now, he isn't someone that you can necessarily quantify or someone that you can externally observe with your five senses. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. But he is real, and so is his witness. As Romans 8.16 tells us, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And then John chapter 15, verse 26. This is the word word of the Lord. When the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so in summary, we have these two incredible reasons for us to obey God, because he loves you, and he shows this to you through his his power over death, through the fact that he died for you, through this truth that he's this exalted prince and savior who forgives you, And then the second reason is because he's left witnesses. The first is an external witness of signs and wonders and miracles and power. And the second is this internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Do we need any more reason to obey God? So let's go back to our text and figure out when is it that we should obey God rather than human beings. I mean, humans in authority aren't always wrong, right? Many times they're right. And like we've learned, our default mode should be obedience. But when, when is it acceptable, uh, or not just acceptable, but morally the right thing to obey God rather than humans? Well, in short, we obey God rather than humans when a human law or mandate violates God's clear word or eternal command from the Bible, understood in its context and correctly applied to our lives. Or to put it more simply, when human laws conflict with God's laws. We see this in uh, Daniel chapter 3, 17, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We also see this ethical, maybe, disobedience in uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, The midwives, however, feared God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt had told told them to do, which was to kill um, all of the kids, uh, which which was to kill all the boys. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Now, I wasn't going to say this, but the next sentence is Pharaoh asking the midwives, uh, why is this happening? And then the midwives lie. And then it says that God was kind to them and he honored them. Okay, so if you want to go through a, a, uh, an interesting moral conversation over the lunch table, turn to Exodus chapter 1 and have a conversation about that. But what we see from this, this morning from this survey of scripture is that the question of obedience to human 
authority isn't simply an open or shut case. We do know that Scripture commands us to obey human authorities, even corrupt wicked ones like Nero in Rome. And our passage in Acts 5 also encourages us to look at the character and the track record of those in authorities. We are, we are to engage our hearts and minds and brains, not just to obey unthinkingly like drones. We also have to look at the reasons to obey God, because he loves you, because he went to the cross for you, because he rose again, and he's left us with witnesses, the external witness of signs and wonders, and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And so in summary, we know that when a human authority figure commands you to be silent, which puts you at odds with God's command to preach the gospel and, you know, to do good, when the lives and souls of human beings are at stake, as followers of Jesus, we can say, I choose to obey a higher court of law than this human one. Verse says, we must obey God rather than human beings. Just like Sister Hua in China, just like the Hebrew midwives, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and just like Peter. But before doing something unwise, let's listen to what Jeff Myers has to say from his book, Understanding the Culture. He says this isn't a light decision. We need the counsel of wise people in the church the ecclesia. We need to be certain that there is no recourse available through existing laws. But in the end, we may have to choose between obeying God and obeying people. And we must be prepared to make that choice regardless of the possibility of punishment. And as we live in a country that is increasingly antagonistic to, you know, the kingdom of God, this is an issue that we must wrestle with. So as we wrap up, let me share with you a quotation from Dr. King. In his letter from, from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. And so as the worship team comes up to uh, lead us in our, in our last response song, here are some questions that you can have in mind as you prayerfully navigate this surprising conflict of allegiances. Um, and like always, our questions are available on YouTube in the description, and they will be available in the show notes on the podcast when it's uh, when it goes live on Monday or or Tuesday. So, as the worship team comes up, here are some questions for us to be thinking about: Why should I obey God? Do I see His external witness in the world around me? Do I know the internal witness of the Holy Spirit? Second question: Who is this that is demanding? my obedience? Why should I obey them? Number three, would it honor God to obey them, even if I don't agree with their worldview or their way of understanding life? Number four, is there anything in what they are asking that should move me away from the default biblical principle of obeying those in authority? Number five, is what I'm being asked to 
do by human authorities in conflict with kingdom principles that Jesus preached. And uh, number six, have I prayed? This is so important. Have I prayed and sought wise counsel regarding how to proceed? And am I willing to pay the cost? Let's pray. Lord, would you grant us wisdom as we seek to discern how to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which will in turn make us the best citizens that our country could ever hope for. In Jesus' name, amen.